Uh, Father, I thank you for an opportunity to be with your people. I thank you for your word. Um, your word's living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword, Lord. And uh, its, its intent is to correct and rebuke and train us and teach us in righteousness as we read uh, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work as you you've given us your word, Lord, and um, this morning we pray that you would do that in our hearts and lives, Lord, that uh, stuff that needs to be rooted out, you'd take out, and stuff that you need to build up, you'd build up, and that you'd prepare us to do the work of ministry that you've all called us to, Lord. Uh, Father, this morning I pray that um, the words that I may have prepared, Lord, that if they ought not to be on the page, you'd take them off, and that you'd add what I don't have, Lord. And, uh, Father, we pray that you would teach us with a demonstration of your Spirit's power, not just persuasive words. So, Father, we ask that you'd have your way in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, so we're in uh, Titus chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, uh, you turn there. If you're thumbing through, you'll come through all the T books, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. If you hit Philemon and Hebrews, you just went past it. Uh, last week, we, we taught through chapter 1. <coughs> And, you know, as I'm coming through Titus, I'm like, whose idea was it to teach through Titus? I had to teach on elders, qualifications for elders, male leadership. And now uh, we're going to see that there's or order in our homes I, I got to teach on, too. And I'm like, man, assistant pastor, whose idea was it to go to Titus? But, hey, it's God's word and it's good. So let's just read through the chapter, chapter 2, and then we'll dive in. Paul says to Tim, uh, Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to too much wine, that they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame. Have nothing and having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's great. He starts off and he says, but as for you. So he's starting with a contrast or a linking word, but it's a contrasting word. So therefore, we need to back up and take a little bit of a running jump into chapter 2. If, if you remember from last week, uh, on the island of Crete, uh, there was some issues within the church, and, and Paul's writing this letter to Titus, and he's saying you need to establish uh, elders, you need to establish godly leadership in the church, and there's issues in this church you need to deal with. And 
in Titus chapter 1, 10, he says that they're insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, uh, the circumcision parting, adding all this stuff to grace. says they've got to be dealt with. And in verse 16, it's talking about these guys that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And it's, Paul describes it so, so distinctly. He says they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The them and the to Titus and to us today. Them disobedient were to be obedient. They were empty talkers. Were to speak truth. They were deceivers. Were to be truth proclaimers. They added false legal requirements. Were to be walk in freedom in grace. They led people astray because of wealth. Paul's example in ministry was a tent maker that the gospel would be go out free of charge. There was issues with profession but no action we are called to be people of action that our speech matches what we do he says but as for you you are to teach and what is he to teach he's to teach what accords with the idea of accord is to become or or to be proper for or one translation says as for you titus promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching or consistent with or that benefits sound Doctrine, when we talk about sound, we, we use that mind with medical terms, don't we? When we talk, you know, someone's got a sound body or a, a sound mind, right? Clear thinking, a healthy body. That's the idea, sound doctrine. Sometimes, I always have, I didn't really realize this till this week actually, but he's talking sound doctrine, and I always think of doctrine as like our tenets of the faith. Um, the word for doctrine actually the first meaning is the act of teaching. I didn't realize that. But in our understanding, it's the second meaning is the meaning of what has been taught, which is what we hang on to are, are, are the tenets of the faith. But I, I almost think that doctrine and theology here are the same thing. It's what we believe, what we hold true, what is being taught. He's to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. We're not to have weak doctrine. We're not to have weak teaching. The opposite of being sound would be to have a, a mind that's away from us or Alzheimer's or a body that's failing us. One man said, what germs are to the physical body, false teaching is to a spiritual body, the church. You know, it's interesting. If you were to go to Acts chapter 2 as the church is just starting out, what did they do? It says in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship breaking of bread and prayers. They taught the word, they hung out together, they broke the bread, the Lord's Supper. I think they also ate together and had meals. And they devoted themselves to prayer. Sound doctrine, keeping their eyes focused on Jesus Christ. The remainder of chapter two is gonna talk about the doctrine or teaching of godly living, how it works out in our homes and in our lives, and then it's gonna kinda go into the doctrine of grace and salvation for the last bit, verses 10 to 15. 2 to 10, the doctrine of godly living, we're going to see how it's applicable to each and every one of us, whether we're young or old, male or female, slave or not. The first group he talks to in verse 2, he says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Sober-minded, having a fair evaluation of oneself, to have a f uh, not thinking too much, not thinking too little, 
the idea of being sober even has the idea that we are not intoxicated by chemicals or alcohol or what have you, that we're sober, that we're clear thinkers, dignified, worthy of respect is what that means. Self-controlled, not out of control, sound in the faith, one who knows what he believes, is competent in the word of God, sound in love, you know, I don't know about you guys. I've been uh, around church circles for, for long, all my life. Um, and there's some really, really great godly guys that I know. Um, there's something cool that happens as people get older, as they serve the Lord. And it's as, I believe it's as there's life experience and as experience of seeing God's faithfulness in their lives there's so much grace. You know, there's one guy I, th- I think of, uh, I've rubbed shoulders with a few times at conferences and stuff, and, you know, I've always said, you know, I'm not interested in the physical part of getting older. I mean, I don't think anyone's interested in that. The things that happen to our bodies, but the graciousness and the love and the wisdom and the understanding that comes with years, I'm like, I want to be like that man when I grow up. Older men. They're to be vessels of grace. You know, we talk about grace being like a river sometimes, right? It comes from the highest of high from God the Father. And it comes right down to the lowest of lows. Meets us where we're at. Grace goes from perfection and comes to us the imperfect. And as the Lord does a work in our hearts, as he changes us, as we grow in maturity and become more and more like him, we ought to extend grace. It's beautiful. All these attributes, these characteristics, they remind me of the godly character that he laid out for us in Titus chapter one for what an elder ought to be like. Sound in the word, a sound in life, sound in their doctrine. He goes on to say in verse three, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. Likewise, in the same way, in the same manner, similarly to the men. To be reverent in behavior. So that means suited to sacredness, suited to sacred behavior. We're called not to be slanderers. You know, I was, as I was studying this week, I was reminded of in Revelation Uh, Chapter 12, it tells us that the devil is accusing us all the time. And as God's people, we ought not to be bringing extra accusations. The idea of slandering is, is that idea of blasphemy, false accusations, maliciously uttered words, twisting the truth. So he says here, the older women, to be careful with their speech. And says that they're, <clears throat> and also, or slaves to not much wine. They're not to be, not to be heavy, heavy drinkers. They're not to be caught up with alcohol, not to be distracted by substance. And there's an important reason why God has laid out that, especially in this passage, that the older women are to be dignified, godly women. You know, when in chapter one we talked about that the, the presbytos, the elder, the pastor, the bishop is to be a male. Because God has ordained an order. But you know what? There is a huge role for women 
in our church and in our homes. There is an important role that they are to play. And look what it is. The end of verse 3. And they are to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. There's actually, a, I, I believe, a commission to women who are a little bit older. What's the age? I don't know. Is it maybe once the kids are out of the house and our time's freed up and things have changed a little bit in our lives, maybe not quite as chaotic? I don't know. But the idea is, is that there is a special role for the older women in the church to invest in the younger women. The younger women who are, are starting their families, who are just getting married, maybe looking for a spouse. I believe that the challenge in this passage uh, specifically to the older women and the younger women is to the older women is there any younger woman in your life cross-generational friends is there anyone that you have an ability to invest in you have years and years of, of valuable wisdom of raising your family of serving the Lord of loving your husbands there is an incredible role to teach. Younger women, are you open to have an older woman speak to you, be friends with? It's a big challenge. Look what they're to teach. First off, teach the younger women to love their children. You know, we, we understand very well uh, the basic love we have for a child, right? Uh, you know, my daughter, she's got me wrapped around my around her finger, not the other way around. Um, we have a strong emotional love for our children. It's a natural instinct. But there's a beautiful thing that we can be taught as we, <coughs> as we grow. We all need to learn more and more how to love our children, and it's, it's a, I think it's to impart love for holiness, to teach the younger women how to raise their kids in their homes, how to discipline them, how to how to pass on the truths of Jesus Christ to our kids. It's an incredibly powerful role. It goes on to say, to teach to love their husbands. <coughs> I heard it said once at someone's 50th wedding anniversary, they got up and said, uh, you know, we actually hated each other five years, but we loved each other for and uh, most of you ladies know that most of us guys can be pretty stubborn and thick-headed. At least I can be. Uh, maybe I'm not speaking for everyone, but my wife, I'm sure, can attest to that. Uh, there's a special role to come alongside a younger person and say, you know what? I was there. I was there. We were struggling. We were in the midst of child raising and finances and this and that and the other. Here's how we got through. Here's how I love my husband and love my kids in the midst of the throes of life. You know, when we were doing a pre-marriage counseling, I'll, I'll never forget, our, our, our pastor reminded us that we're to receive and we're to re leave and we're to cleave. And to receive our spouse for who they are, who God has made them, their strengths and their weaknesses. And that we were to leave our parents, that we were to, to uh, um, have a break in ties, so to speak, 
the dependency and being under the rule of our parents. The roles changed. But thirdly, we were to cleave. And I don't think our society understands the idea of cleave very well. When we think of cleave, we probably think more of the meat cleaver that breaks something. Splits it in half. Because is that we see that happen all too often in our society, that marriages don't last. But cleave actually has a secondary meaning, which is to stick like glue, like crazy glue, something that's welded together. Ladies, you have the opportunity to speak into young families' lives and help them to cleave in the tough times. To impart these godly truths, to help younger women be self-controlled, to walk in purity, to help them help them manage their home, to be a homemaker, teach them to be kind, extend grace. And then it says, teach them to submit to their husbands. What did I do going to teach this passage? (laughs) In our culture, submitting doesn't sound very good, does it? I grew up and I observed some idea of submission that was actually oppression. It was not, not submission. It wasn't a godly thing. Guys would go and they would read, you know, in Ephesians, wives submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the, is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, and they'd stop right there. And they would miss the entire rest of the context of how God has ordained our homes to operate. There is an order there's the man, there's the wife. There we have different roles. We are, as men, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, how he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing the water of the word. That is an incredible role, that we're the washing with the water of the word. We're to be spiritual leaders in our homes, men. We're to be servant leaders. Christ died for us. He was a servant of all. His blood was poured out for us. I love how the context of Colossians, Colossians chapter three talks about wives and husbands as well. And there's a beautiful context that goes on there. Because (coughs) in Colossians three, it talks about what we're to put off and what we're to put on. And he, uh, the Paul there writes to the Colossian church, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And he goes on to say anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, do not lie to one another. Put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Then put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony so that the peace of Christ may rule. Then after that, he talks about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives. He explains what it is. Wives, would it be hard to follow a man who has surrendered himself to Jesus Christ, who has put off anger and wrath and malice and sexual immorality and idolatry and covetousness and has put on love and compassion and meekness and humility? 
Men, would it be hard to lead in loving, in a loving way, a wife who has put off anger, wrath, malice, anger, slander, obscene talk, lying, and has put on compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, and patience? You know, I was chatting about this before the service uh, with Jesse, and, and he reminded me of, of dancing. And I am not a dancer. I have always, I've always held to that dancing is more of a spectator sport because, um, <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. So, but he reminded me that when a couple dances, that there is a pressure. There's a leader and there's a follower, and they must work together. It's like a f- there's a fluidity in a fluidity in that relationship. As they as one leads the other, they they apply a pressure, and it's a back and forth thing. And it, it's actually a really beautiful. He said there's supposed to be what five pounds of pressure. Yeah, five pounds of pressure. Okay, yeah, yeah, five pounds. <laughs> Five pounds of pressure. But the idea is that, that, that the leader is feeling the response. We're to love one another. You know, we, it should not be oppression. It should not be coming under and being squished. It should be men. We should be, we should be wanting our wives to shine. We should be wanting to see them washed in the word and walking with Jesus Christ as they as they serve in our homes and love our children. It's a challenge, I think, more to the men than it is to the women. It is to the women. It's to both of us. We're to lead godly men and women. The God-ordained order here is that we're to, in all things godly, we're to come and follow the man who leads. If there's problems in your home, I, I, I'd say pray for your husband. Pray for your husband. Seek godly counsel. Ask that older lady to help you navigate the waters of the difficulties. She's probably been there. He goes on and he gets to the fourth group now. And he says, likewise, urge younger women, or younger men rather, to be self-controlled. Likewise, it's a linking word again. We're to these same characteristics and attributes. The same characteristics we saw in chapter one of what was godliness as displayed for an elder. We're to have these attributes. And they add self-control here, especially a reminder to the men. Bring all things in submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four distinct groups. Old, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. We all have a role in the kingdom of God. I actually believe that the older men here, some of these guys would have been the elders that Titus would have laid hands on. In this initial context, Titus was to teach the young guys, but Titus wasn't going to be there forever. You'll see at the end of the letter, Paul says, Titus, when you can, come to me. So he's setting up uh, older men who will eventually be teaching the younger men. In the meantime, he says, older women, teach the younger women. It's also great wisdom for the protection of the church. Paul says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity and dignity. You know what? Setting up uh, an order like that ensures that a young man isn't put in a weird situation with a young woman that there could be reproach. It keeps above, it keeps, helps keep the leadership of the church above reproach when we walk in the order that God has ordained. We were talking about being above reproach in our home group on Wednesday, and it's the idea of being squeaky clean. 
that nothing, when mud's flung, that it can't stick because we live above reproach. So he says, be a model of good works and your teaching show integrity and dignity. Be faithful to the text. Work hard both in life and doctrine. Be hard working, he's saying to, to Titus and therefore to us. When he teaches, he's to be faithful to the text. We, we saw in, in chapter one that the elder, the teacher, is to hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the word of God. No compromise. The fifth group he's gonna talk about is the slaves. We don't quite fully understand slaves and masters relationships the way it would have been back then, but the closest thing we probably have is our employee-employer relationships. Verse nine and 10, slaves are not to be submissive, or are not to be. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You know, this was probably so crazy and countercultural. There would have been tons of slaves and masters in that, in that culture. And then you could throw them into the church, and you may have had a slave that was an overseer. You may have a slave that was a, a, a bishop or pastor. And you may have had the master be a layperson. And the orders got mixed, was of the order of the world got mixed upside down in the church in a great way, in a beautiful way. But he's ex- saying, he's gonna remind them not to take advantage of that. And if your master's not a believer, you still, you don't wanna take advantage of him. We're to be submissive in all things, first to God, and then to our employers in our situation today. They were to be to their masters in that day. The idea of submissive is to arrange oneself, to obey. It's a Greek military term uh, that means to submit to a, a command structure, to follow the, the directives of their master. We're to be well-pleasing in our workplace, highly gratified or, or, or satisfies what well-pleasing means. I have to ask myself sometimes, and I think you and I can too, in our workplace, when we do a job, uh, if we're regular employees or maybe we're contractors, whatever, um, does our boss have the ability to brag about how good an employee they have? Are we serving our employee as unto the Lord? We going into work and doing our very best? Are we in, 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 a, in a situation that uh, when we leave to move on that our employer's you know, I really wish you weren't going because we love having you here. You do a great job. When they go to managers' meetings, man, we got the best guys. Got the best guys. Braggability, well-pleasing. And he goes on to say, we're not to be argumentative or a gainsayer, some translations say, to deny, dispute, contradict, repudiate, challenge, oppose, counter, rebuke. Do we show respect in our workplace? You know, sometimes our employers don't um, behave the way we want them to. Sometimes they don't treat us well. Sometimes we don't think it's fair what's going on. Uh, are we backbiting and speaking, speaking poorly of our workplace, of our employers, of our coworkers? 
it's easy to get there. I've been there. Sometimes I'm there. Like, oh. It says we're not to be pilfering, not stealing. You know, that's, that's material things. That's time. You know, um, as I was looking, up, looking at stuff this week, um, I just Googled uh, cost of employee theft. And it said that in the United States that it costs employers $42 billion a year in employee theft. I'm talking about everything from pencils to cars. I don't know how you steal a car. Somehow it needs to get signed over into your name. I don't know how you do that. But uh, the idea is simple. Are we taking things off-site? Are we taking advantage and wasting the resources that we are entrusted to use? It's really easy to get into that, right? You know, oh, they're so wasteful with stuff, you know. I'm just going to take, <coughs> I need this. I'm just going to take this home. And my, you know, my job as a mechanic, <coughs> we got to, <coughs> excuse me, we have all these shop supplies. There's greases and there's oils and there's gloves because we don't like our hands being dirty anymore. And, <coughs> Sorry, and all these things. It's really easy to, oh, I got, there's lots of this stuff around. I'll take one home to do my job at home. Um, we're, not to, we're not to be the people that do that. We're to be the people that, uh, if we want to use resources at work, that we have permission. And our employer says, hey, feel free to use that stuff. That's totally different. That's not theft. Employer has gifted that to you then. It's different. But rather than being all these negatives, we are to put off the old man, we're to put on, but show. It's another contrast, but put off, put on. We're to demonstrate good faith and trust. Primarily in our work, can, are we trustworthy in our workplace? Does our display in our workplace display Jesus? We are God's ambassadors. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're God's ambassadors. You know, for some people, we might be the closest thing they will ever see or hear or read about Jesus is how we live our lives. We can't be in the workplace. You know, Matt talked about being salt and light and that, you know, um, they go hand in hand. We can't just be salt and throw salt into something if we haven't been shining light. And in my workplace, uh, in your workplace, how can we speak the truths, share the gospel with our coworkers when we're bad workers or, or, or we, we pilfer or, or, or. Our, our lives need to match our, te- our testimony. In fact, we're to ordain the doctrine of God our Savior, it says, uh, or adorn. You know, when I was thinking of adorn, I always just think of that as like, you know, like putting a coat on, you know, kind of adorning oneself in something. Uh, but what it actually means, adorn means to make something more beautiful to make it more attractive. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, really, it is attractive. It's beautiful. It's salvation. It's grace. It's free. We have the ability to make it more beautiful, in a way, by how we live our lives in this context in our workplaces. I don't know about you, but I'm always saddened when I see the reverse of this happening. You know, um, you know, I had a customer the other day that at work, and they had a problem with their truck, and it was a little bit beat up truck that someone had modified and all this stuff. Anyhow, 
Um, the service rider comes out. Oh, I got the wicked witch of the West in the, up there. Here, quick, do this. Let's get her out of here. Oh, this isn't good. So we get in there, and uh, she's upset about everything. I'll never be able to please her. And I start working on the truck, and I see Bible verses in the truck, and I see, you know, WOW 2015 CDs in there. And as it drives away, there's a little fish on the back bumper. And I'm hoping, it's sad, but I'm hoping that my coworkers aren't seeing the fish on the back bumper as she drives out. I had my manager come running out and say to me, stop working on that truck, get it out of here. Because of the way that someone carried themselves in the world. We have a challenge to be salt and light in our communities and in our workplaces and the places that we go and do business at. It's a big challenge because some days we have bad days. Maybe the lady just had a bad day. I don't know. But either way, it's a challenge to you and to I. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God. The grace of God is, you know, it's embodied, it's personified, it's defined by Jesus Christ. But you know it's personified because it's made real to you and I through the gift of of grace that's poured out on us through Jesus Christ. You know, I was talking with Shona about this yesterday, and grace is such an amazing thing. You know, it's that favor we don't deserve, unmerited favor. I don't think we'll ever fully get it. We'll ever get our minds entirely wrapped around it. But grace comes with huge cost, huge sacrifice. First for the giver, you know, that we understand well what Jesus did for us. It means that favor is given when it's not deserved. It's not retaliating for wrongs and injustices that probably could be retaliated for. In fact, it's giving gifts when one's wrong. That's what grace is. It's an act of love without conditions. The closest thing we understand is that parent-child relationship. But it's beyond that. It's agape. It's a decision. It's a choice. And it's active. It's not passive. It's preemptive. We know the verse well in Romans 5, 8, right? But God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And even for the recipient, when we, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we might have to give up our pride. We might have to give up our will. Grace is beautiful. Grace is awesome. Grace has a high price. Grace works. You know that? Grace isn't, like I said, it's active. It's not passive. It says here, grace brings salvation for all people. You know, the word all is simply that. It's that very simple word, word all. I I looked up, just out of curiosity, the word all here is like used like hundreds of times in the New Testament. And it's not like ambiguous. It's not like, you know, well, some people, it's all. It's translated all whosoever, you know, John 3.16 is all, all whosoever should believe in him. Uh, it's all. It's available to all. Grace brings salvation, redemption, pays the price. It trains us. 
Grace trains us to respond. It's, 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 it teaches us to renounce, to repent, to turn our mind from ungodliness and desire to walk in godliness, to put on those attributes of Jesus Christ. We're called to walk in grace and to be obedient to it. She said, if you love me, you will f- keep my commandments. I read this this week. One may say that in the world we are tempted to say yes to every desire and feeling that the reality of our faith can be demonstrated, but we say no by, w- but the, ref- sorry, I should just start that over. One may say that in a world where we are tempted to say yes to every desire and feeling that the reality of our faith can be di- demonstrated by what we say no to and what we are willing to deny. Repenting. Move to, as he describes here, grace brings us into a self-controlled and upright life. Puts things back into kilter. Into level. Gives us the ability to live above reproach, to be squeaky clean. He says that as for this present age, scripture tells us that today is a day of salvation. It's not for tomorrow. While we're walking in, in Canada, in this context, in Crete, in a society that doesn't, doesn't honor God, it, it's irrelevant. Salvation is for today. God said to the Israelites in captivity in Babylon that they were to settle down and they were to, to pray for their land and, and carry on serving the Lord in that place. The place you've been planted today gives us ability to walk today in his grace. It says, as, <coughs> as we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us, purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're always to be looking, keeping our eyes, expecting Jesus Christ to come. There's something purifying about keeping our eyes on our blessed hope. Blessed means, oh, so happy. Our hope is not a desire. Our hope is a fixture. Remember in, in Titus chapter one, and we remind that God never lies. And his promise is the hope found in the person of Jesus Christ. I read this this week. He said, he came the first time to save the soul of man. He will come the second time to resurrect the body. He came the first time to save the individual. He came the second time to, he will come the second time to save the society. He came the first time to a crucifixion. He will come a second time to a coronation. The first time he came to a tree, he will come a second time to a throne. The first time he came in humility, the second time he will come in glory. He came the first time and was judged by men, and he will come a second time to judge all men. He, will come, he came the first time and stood before Pilate. He will come a second time, and Pilate will stand before him. He's coming back. He is our blessed hope. He says it describes him as a great God. It's the word megos, mega Our God is great. We have the ability to know and be known by that great God. We have an ability to receive his redemption, to walk in that grace that's been given us. It's not simply a hope. It's not simply your hope or someone else's hope. It says it's our hope. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's our hope. Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God comes and dwells within us. 
Remember that story in Acts where the sons of Sceva uh, were trying to uh, uh, invoke the name of Jesus Christ and the, the name of Paul to cast out demons? They were like itinerant uh, exorcists or whatever they called themselves. And they said, oh, in the name of Jesus Christ who Paul teaches, you know, be out. And what happened? They, the, the demon spoke back and said, well, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of, but who are you? And then he went and he, oh, the man who was possessed overtook them, beat them up, and they ran away naked, it says, and wounded. They were beat up. The point, really, of that story is that the Spirit of God was not living in those people. If the Spirit of God was living in those people, the demon would have trembled in fear. To all who received him, to all who believed on his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Not only that, Jesus gave himself up for us. He freely did. John 10 says, no one takes it up, speaking of his life, takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus came and he laid down his life for us freely. He redeemed us from lawlessness. Redeem is that idea to release on a receipt of ransom. A bill has been paid. 2 Corinthians tells us that for our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He redeemed us from our inability to attain the legal requirements that God requires. I love in Hebrews chapter 9 the description of what Jesus has done for us. Hebrews chapter 9 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You know, that actually doesn't sound that nice, does it? We don't like that idea. It sounds kind of gross. It sounds kind of dirty. But the reality is, is that sin is of high cost. There's, to redeem sin is high cost. Blood. Thus, it is necessary for copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. They used to, they used to you know, shed the blood of, of a lamb and a goat and you know, all these different things to, to meet the law. But now, in heaven, Jesus has entered. For Christ has entered not, has, has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are the copy of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and then after that comes judgment, so, Jesus, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him because his blood is sufficient to pay for your sin, my sin, and the sin of the world. Redemption. It's, an ex it's a transaction. Cha-ching. Paid in full. Paid in full. Jesus is how we are justified. He is our sanctification, becoming more like him. It says that we, <coughs> it describes us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ as a people for his own possession. Something special to God cares about his people. We're to be zealous for good works. 
you know, Scripture never really, never separates faith and good works. Yes, we are saved by our faith alone, but we are to have faith that works. It's to be active. It's to be living. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all scriptures God breathed, right? And used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. But verse 17 is so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has a role for us. And if it's in our, if it's in our homes, if it's in our workplace, if it's in the church, God has a role for us. There's a place of service whether we're young, there's a place of service whether we're old, there's a place of service if we hate our job. It's all because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul tells Timothy, declare these things. Don't let go of them. Exhort people, encourage. Rebuke with authority. Let no one disregard you, he says. Timothy, speak the truth, he says. The truth is that Jesus died for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed. We're gonna take part in communion in a few minutes where we remember that sacrifice that Jesus did for us, that he died on the cross, that the weight of the sin came upon his shoulders, that his physical body was broken and that his blood was shed for us. It's a reminder of what he's done for us. It's to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, the one who purifies us. This morning, uh, we're going to have a song in a minute. Trish, you guys can come on up. Um, and I invite you to search your hearts. Uh, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, this is open for you to come and partake and remember what Jesus has done for you. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, we ask that you respectfully refrain from partaking. But the third option is this. If you don't know Jesus Christ but would like to, it's simple. It's putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's saying, Jesus, I recognize that you died for my sin. Thank you for that gift of grace. Thank you for that redemption. Thank you that it's complete. Lord, I surrender my life to you. Be the Lord of my life. Then come join us and partake as your first act of obedience.